Our children and our youth uh, can be dismissed now. They are going to worship and learn in a different place while we stay together here to worship and learn. It's on. It's on. The green light's on. Okay. Test. Is it on? Okay. So we are walking through some stories in the New Testament where people meet Jesus. Uh, and um, just for those of you who haven't heard this already, I might repeat it throughout this entire series. The staff got together and we said, we really want to kind of focus on the life of Jesus. And we're starting with when people have encounters with Jesus. And so today, um, we're talking about a moment, a tense moment in a worship service. Uh, you might say, uh, remember, I don't think kids do this much anymore, but I remember there was a time when, like, when something tense was happening, uh, young people would kind of break the tension by going, awkward, like this was an awkward moment. And you may also notice that before I read the scriptures, I always say a prayer. In, in our tradition, it's called a prayer for illumination. That means, like, we, these are just words, words I speak, words we read from the scripture. They're still just a collection of words until by the power of the Holy Spirit. They become for us a word from God. Let us pray. Lord, we have sung this morning that we need you. We need you. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would meet us here. In the scriptures read, and the words spoken, may what is of you take root and grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is from Mark 3. This passage, I'll explain uh, later, really took me back. It's not one I dealt with in a really long time. Uh, it's from Mark 3, 1 through 6, and I actually read it uh, this week in the J.B. Phillips. Does anybody know this version? You know, the Bible is translated. There's the King James, there's the New Revised Standard, there's all kinds of... The J.B. Phillips is a very old... He was a British theologian uh, back when I was a teenager in the 70s. That was like the thing to have a J.B. Phillips New Testament, a thing among my group of nerdy friends. Um, <laughs> Okay, so this is from the J.B. Phillips translation, in case you go home and read it and you go, I don't remember that word. On another occasion, when Jesus went into the synagogue, there was a man there whose hand was shriveled, and they, this is referring back to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, were watching Jesus closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day so that then they might bring a charge against him. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up and come out here in front. Then he said to them, is it right to do good on the Sabbath day or to do harm? Is it right to save life 
or to kill. There was a dead silence. Then Jesus, deeply hurt as he sensed their inhumanity, looked around in anger at the faces surrounding him and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And the hand was restored as sound as the other one. The Pharisees walked straight out and discussed with Herod's party how they could have, how they could have Jesus destroyed. When I was a very young preacher, I subscribed to a preaching magazine, and one of my favorite cartoons was a, a young man uh, gazing adoringly over a crib uh, and a little sleeping baby, and the caption was, oh, my sweet little bundle of sermon illustrations. It's been a long time since I have really delved into this passage. And when I began to read it this week, I was taken back to a time when I had little bundles of sermon illustrations. I was taken back to the days when I was in seminary and the first time I ever preached on this passage and I was learning an, what's called an exegetical process. How do, you, how do you get the meaning out of the passage? And uh, it's a process I still use. You start with, you know, the, the scriptures. By the way, that's where I start. I don't start with an idea that I want to say. I start with a scripture passage and ask myself, how does this speak into my life, and how might it speak into the lives of those gathered as we worship? So uh, I was doing that for one of my very first sermons I was going to preach in seminary. I was reading this passage, and, and there's a series of questions that you go through, you know, historical questions, literary questions, language questions, and then there's, a, there's a, what's called the personal questions. And, and the, it's kind of, this, this is actually as it's written on my little guide. What is the moment in the text that gets to you? that fascinates, thrills, haunts, intrigues you. And at that time, at that moment, when I was preparing for that sermon, I was haunted by an incident that had happened about a month or so earlier. My then seven-year-old son, Ty, uh, and we, we had been at worship, we were church hopping in Princeton, New Jersey, and we were at a little around in the vicinity. We were at a church in Cranberry, New Jersey. And it was a very traditional church. Everything was very formal. They did communion by passing the, you know, the little trays with the little pieces of bread and the cup. And so we were doing communion, and uh, the plates were being passed, and took the bread, and as I went to take my cup and then bow my head to pray, I looked over at Ty, who had that little cup, and was like licking it ferociously. I mean, he was trying to get every drop out. He's seven years old. And I gave him the death stare. 
I gave him the shame on you stare. I gave him a look that said in no uncertain terms, don't show your need right here and right now. Now you might think, Pam, you're kind of overdoing it. It was for me. It was a moment of deep conviction. And I remember thinking, Jesus was probably angry at me, just like he was those Pharisees who gathered that Sunday and they would not allow for the human need of someone to be centered in that worship service. Imagine with me, if you will, the scene. The synagogue worship has, should I turn this off? No. Okay, okay. The synagogue worship had structures just like every gathering does. Every human gathering needs structures. Structures aren't bad. Protocols aren't bad. When they supersede human need, Jesus gets mad. But what happened was so that they've got these structures, and again, they're not bad. I'm not coming down on, on traditions. There's a great quote, you know, uh, traditions, uh, traditions are the faith of, anyway, I'm going to get it wrong. Traditionalism is the dead faith of living people. Traditions is the living faith of dead people, who've, people who've passed faith on to. So I'm not knocking traditions. I'm not knocking structures. I'm not, Jesus went to the synagogue a lot, and he functioned within those structures. So everybody's gathering for worship, and they're doing it appropriately, just the way it should be done. They're wearing the right things. They're saying the right things. They're sitting in the right places. And the man with a withered hand comes. Now, there's all kinds of speculation through the history of interpretation. Why was he there? Did the Pharisees use him as a pawn, invite him to come in order to trap Jesus? Why was he there? Was he just a regular worshiper who came every week but kind of sat in the back and, and hid his hand underneath the folds of his robe? Did everybody know already that he was in need? Or was it just the Pharisees who were just waiting to see what Jesus would do? And by the way, all the Pharisees wanted was for him to heal on the Sabbath so they could get him. Jesus could have very easily walked over to the man who I imagine, well, we know he was on the fringes because Jesus had to invite him to the middle. Jesus could have just as easily walked over to him. In this incident, Jesus actually doesn't touch him. Other times, Jesus' touch heals, but he could have just said the word quietly, healed him, be done with it. But Jesus calls him front and center. So two people meet Jesus in this incident that I want to talk about. One is the man who has, is suffering. The man who is in need. 
And when we meet Jesus in our need, Jesus does invite us to come in the front and center to be vulnerable. I think Kairos does this in a lot of good ways. Our community prayer is an example of that. But it's hard to do. I have no doubt that we sometimes come to worship all dressed up with a smile on our face when really our souls are withering and we don't, we don't share that. We don't give the community an opportunity to be the Jesus we need in that moment. That can be hard. But we're meeting Jesus today who's saying, no, listen, communities of faith ought to be the place where human need is first, where all of our protocols are secondary to the needs of real people. But the other people who meet Jesus in this story are the Pharisees. Now, Pharisees get a bad name. Not all Pharisees are bad. But there is a group of Pharisees who are so legalistic that they miss the point. And they are in utter silence in the face of human suffering. And Jesus is mad. There's a saying amongst preachers, maybe you've heard it, that good preaching, faithful preaching, comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. And I, I think of this scene as like, the actual, like, quintessential example of that. Jesus is comforting the afflicted, and he is afflicting the comfortable. It is not okay to put your comfort and your need above the needs of a suffering person right here in your midst, and just to stand silent while others suffer. I love the way J.B. Phillips puts it. Jesus deeply hurt as he sensed their inhumanity. Karl Barth is a great theologian, some of you may know, very influential. He has a saying, Christians should start every day with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another. I have to preach my conscience today. And I'm going to tell you something. I've thought a lot about this, really, all through the night, last night, and yesterday. I think I wouldn't put it beyond Jesus if he were here. To put Tyree Nichols in the middle of our conversation. That might make us uncomfortable. That might feel awkward. That might make you close down. But I have to tell you, I've thought a lot about it in the last few days. Several years ago, I was part of Leadership Atlanta, 
and I was confronted with my own naivety. When I got to hear the stories of my friends of color in that class, that absolutely shattered my, my complacency. There was one of my friends who talked about, he had a young son who was in the Iraq war. He said, his mother and I, we worried about her every, worried about him every single day. Would we get the call? Would he survive? Would he, he, he was there for, I don't, I don't remember how many years. When he came home, after he'd been home a couple of months, he went to a party outside of Atlanta in rural Georgia. And it was about two in the morning, and their phone dinged. The parents, both phones, he had texted them both. My car has broken down. My signal is not strong enough to call. I'm not sure where I am. I need your help. And to hear him say, the fear that we felt that night with our son stranded in rural Georgia was exponentially worse than all the fear that we had had the entire time he was in Iraq. Jesus looked around at their silence and was deeply hurt at their inhumanity. It was a very intense group that I was a part of, and I remember just person after person standing up and saying, I, I'm so afraid for my young son. And I remember one woman stood up and said, my white sisters, are you not mothers? Would you not demand accountability if these were your sons? Just because we can't imagine it doesn't mean it isn't front and center on the heart of Jesus that we have a culture that devalues and dehumanizes young black men. During COVID, after the George Floyd killing, I was listening to a podcast, and one of my old friends came on there, George Raveling. He was an assistant coach with my father at the University of Maryland. He was the first black assistant in the Atlantic Coast Conference back in the uh, late 60s. And George was like a brother and a father to me. I grew up joking with George and everything. And he was being interviewed by Tim Ferriss. Some of you may know that podcast. And, and I, I heard him tell the stories of his life as a young man in the 70s and 80s in D.C. And that his motto that he lived by was, stay alive, George, just stay alive. I think Jesus wants us to care about this.
I think Jesus wants us to care about human suffering and our, we have a culture that dehumanizes and devalues a particular set of people and I think we shouldn't be silent and I don't know what that means for you. I'm not sure exactly what it means for me. But I wouldn't be faithful to the gospel as I have received it this week if I didn't bring it up with you today. They were silent. And Jesus looked around at their faces, deeply hurt by their inhumanity. Jesus meets us when we are afflicted, when we are in pain and we are suffering. Jesus invites us to be a community where we can bring our pain and suffering and be met by him through one another. And Jesus also brings our attention to those who are suffering in our community, in our world, in our nation, and calls us to put our comfort and our protocols in second place to respond to that need. That means something different for all of us, but what I know it means is that we need help. I started by telling you that my children have often been great teachers for me. And I remembered this, I had this written down from years ago when Walker was four. I heard him in his room playing and I said, what's going on back here? Mom, come here. He wrapped his arms around my neck. Mom, I love God and I made up a song. These are the exact words because I wrote them down. I can't remember the exact tune. I said, sing it for me, Walker. God is helpful. God loves us. God is the one who helps us. I love God. And what would we do without someone to help us? God is helpful. God loves us. All of God is the one who helps us. And what would we do without someone to help us? Amen.